Hello and welcome to a special Inset Week Supply Teacher edition of Romaniacs. It's half term, a large chunk of our team are off at centre parks or walking the Appian Way or whatever it is they do in the metropolitan bubble on their holidays. So I am filling in. My name's Andrew Harrison and I'm the producer of this show. Sitting at the back of the class and throwing orange peel at me today will be two of our regulars. Peter Collins is our business expert and armchair brexologist. Hello Peter, how are you? Very well, thank you. After the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal, are you feeling ever happier that you're not on social media at all and cannot be traced? in any way. Well, I hate to say I told you so, but actually I do don't hate to say I told <laughs> you, you love so. to say you told <laughs> us But so. what I do is, it, whenever I have to go on a social media thing and you have to register to read something, the, the one thing you can do is throw a little digital spanner in the works because there's no requirement to tell the truth. So I always register as a 92-year-old transsexual from San Francisco called Doris. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what's your secret identity? Uh, <laughs> no, I now get these spam emails on the special email address with a fake name that hmm. I use for this purpose that says, congratulations Doris, you won a prize. Click here to find out what it is. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I thought your secret identity was at, at, at real Donald Trump, but uh, I, I, I guess not. Do you not, do you not ever worry that uh, big data will cross-reference you with the electoral roll? Find out that you're not on the social media and then you will be the valuable digital denier votes. It's very hard to reach people. Well, that's fine by me because, you know, if they want to expend huge amounts of effort advertising in a micro-targeted way to me on, ab- on websites I never go to, they're welcome. It's <laughs> a challenge out there for Cambridge Analytica, you if you're listening. <laughs> also with us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and a man with a size 9 digital footprint. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? <laughs> very well indeed. Thank you. What has been your favourite development this week? Was it Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary, calling for a return of the military ethos in schools? Oh, or, yeah. or was it the Brexit ultras calling for mass resignations at the Electoral Commission because a whole four out of ten of them had criticised the pro-Brexit campaign? Which was your favourite? It's definitely Williamson. I, I find him just... It, I, I, I probably have seen worse leadership campaigns in my life before, but he might just be conducting the worst for at least the last couple of years. Mm. He's so staggeringly inept. Like, the classic thing is the Russia thing of, you know, go away and shut up or something. Just the, the, <laughs> the, the absolute sort of mountains of rhetoric that he's managed to pour out there. And now the stuff, which you sort of hear all the time, don't you? Like, oh, we should turn the schools more into the military, which I think doesn't really come from any thought out sort of agenda. It more just comes out from this instinctive sort of background hatred of the young, where you yeah. really just think, do you really want them to be you know, military academy or do you just actually want to watch young children get hit a bit? Is that ultimately it's, where this is going? It's like your angry old kind of you know, quasi-racist uncle whose response to everything was, put them in the bloody army! Put exactly. them in the bloody army! <laughs> uh, the Electoral uh, Commission bit, though, the, 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 the wide range of voices calling for resignations to the Electoral Commission, it spanned a spectrum from Reese Mogg all the way to Kizzler Stewart, you know this is this is the, it was a huge sort of surely if only forty percent of electoral commissioners are criticising the Leave campaign, that's less than the actual Leave vote. So we need to have one more electoral commissioner, mm. come, you know, for, for proportionality. It's unrepresentative. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything in this story at all, or is it telling no, it's nonsense? complete nonsense? Identity politics crap. Excellent. Good to know. Also. <laughs> With us, we have a special guest. Harry Ears is a former FT columnist who has written Johnson's Brexit Dictionary, as in Dr Johnson, not Boris Johnson. It's an amusing sideways look at the language of Brexit, containing such definitions as euphony, an agreeable sound, or a fake who works on behalf of the EU. EU phony, you see. And also euthanasia, an easy death, strangulation by EU regulations according to Brexiters. It's an actual headline factory. Hello, Harry. Welcome to Romaniacs. Hello. Uh, How are you doing? Thanks for having me here. I just, 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 can I just get rid of that tarantula? Um, uh, we're talking about w- Williamson, you know, and I just think it just, we ought to be a bit careful because it's crawling in your direction. <laughs> it is, yes. Well, it's, I think it, it may actually be a GCHQ robot tarantula monitoring the, the, the broadcast in Romaniacs. 
Harry, we should have checked. Where are you on Brexit? Pro, anti, just hoping it carries on till Christmas for the gifting market? No, I'm passionately opposed to it. I think it's the most disastrous act of self-mutilation of any nation in sort of modern history, or perhaps in all history, but I, I tend to get all history. slightly carried away. I'm passionately opposed to it, deeply depressed by it, uh, kept vaguely sane and by certain people like yourselves and a group I belong to called the Left Wine Coalition. The Left Wine, well, because you are a wine writer here, as well. Some yes. knowledge of, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it, this, this group is thought by some to be a bunch of champagne socialists who gather in, in, in the city to have slap up dinners. I've got no idea why they think that <laughs> at all. So. But they're a very good bunch you know, who, who, who exchange really useful stuff about Brexit every day, a lot of it. So I, I, I get a lot of that stuff and I'm absolutely horrified by it. I, I've got no less horrified by it in the last 18 months, possibly more so. Every well, morning I wake up wishing it hadn't happened. But uh, I think there's a lot of it about. Uh, in, in the book, you describe Brexit as like a play by Samuel Beckett in which the main character never arrives. Would that be waiting for Bojo? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think he probably does have a habit of turning up rather late. It's only dishevelled. I mean, uh, whether Godot would have looked at all like that, I'm not, I mean, if he'd ever had turned up, I'm not quite sure. But no. um, yeah, I know that, that, that trope has been used, uh, you know, a little bit uh, around around the town, but I, I think it is quite an apt uh, trope. I mean, I, of course, I hope it turns out to be true. You know, and that, you know, Godot's trope Brexit never does arrive, actually. But um, I'm not quite sure about that. We'll, we'll have to think. Well, about we're going to find out on the show today. We're going to be talking about uh, Harry's Johnson's Brexit Dictionary and the challenges of satirising Brexit, plus Theresa May's grand one year to go tour of the British Isles. What did we learn, and did the cows of Northern Ireland appreciate it? <laughs> Uh, it's been a bad week for the BBC. Corbynisters and Brexiters have been long been claiming bias against their positions. Now the simmering resentment of some Remainers is coming to the surface as well. Is it a good look for us to rail against the Brexit Broadcasting Corporation? Also, Vote Leave volunteer Dami Olatuyi, I hope I've said that right, called for a final say referendum on the terms of Brexit in The Guardian this week. When even Leavers are calling for another vote, does that mean it's inevitable? And, back by popular demand, we've got another round of Ask Remaniacs, where we answer your questions. All this and more after this brief message from Peter. Just a reminder that if you want to support Romaniacs, the biggest free and independent Brexit podcast on the internet, then please think about pledging a small amount to us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. You can get a beautiful Romaniacs mug if you pledge a mere $5 a month. Yes, for some reason Patreon works in dollars, but we're not going to fight them on it. <laughs> or you can get a mug plus a stylish T-shirt for $10 a month. Or a Marga t-shirt and a handy Romaniacs tote bag if you go the whole hog. No reference to David Cameron there. Uh, go the whole hog and pledge $50 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets first dibs on tickets for our Romaniacs live shows. New dates announced soon. Find out more at Romaniacs.com or go to patreon.com slash Romaniacscast. Join in and own the Ramon. Well, incredibly, this has been the first almost quiet Brexit Newsweek since we started. I wish it could be Easter every day. This is what life was like before Brexit. <laughs> but some things did happen, and one of them was Theresa May's world tour of the British Isles. Expertly timed to beat last week's show so we couldn't report on it, the Prime Minister marked the one-year countdown to B-Day by touring the Four Nations and giving the same platitudes about opportunities in cowsheds, car parks and slip roads from Air to Barry. In the words of UKIP's interim leader, Gerard Batten, it's exactly 12 months until the day that we don't really leave the EU. Now, Peter Collins, you're our faithful <laughs> Theresa May fanboy on the show. What does she make of her royal procession around the country? Up to a point, Lord Romania. <laughs> so we got a series of pointless photo shoots of the Prime Minister on the farm, Prime Minister talking to some business people, 
Prime Minister at a parent and toddler group and so on. As you've said, same old platitude, same old un- unwillingness to meet the press and answer any actual questions. And so she said on the, her Twitter account that to mark one year to go until Brexit, I'm embarking on a day-long tour. Wow. <laughs> a day-long tour across the UK to demonstrate my determination to deliver a deal that works for every community, blah, 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 blah. But apart from just turning up, how exactly did she... Uh, demonstrate her determination. She didn't really do anything. Well, she did it in a day. That's quite determined. But apart from that, I mean, she and it really looked quite. It, it was etched on her face how much she didn't enjoy it, wasn't yeah, it? Indeed. Well, just just like everything else. Well, in her yeah. Life. How can you tell? Yeah. Well, you know, presumably they get told you must do this sort of thing. You know, the Sir Humphreys or the Sir Jeremy's, as it happens to be these days. So you must do something like this. But I think there's, there is something to it, and it, it's the sort of I'm still here tour. Remember, yes. remember mm. Rory Bremner doing that impression of John Major. Oh, yes, I'm still here. You know, in other words, <laughs> yes. I, I've been written off so many times by the political correspondents, but I am still here. And if you notice recently, there have been a couple of pieces uh, that sort of say that in, 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 in the kind of political op-ed pages, saying, well, she's she's soldiering on, or she's yes. like a good old-fashioned footballer. Yes. Say what you like about her, she's still here. Exactly. As if not literally evaporating into her constituent molecules is an achievement. (laughs) So so there is a message there that, you know, it's still going on. Uh, Resistance is futile. Whether you're a Remainer or a hard Brexiter who wants a harder Brexit, we're just going to plug on with a sort of softish Brexit and there's nothing you can do about it. And to quote another famous politician, Margaret Thatcher's famous um, advisor, Willie Whitelaw, in his classic statement about stirring up complacency, that's what she's doing she's stirring up complacency <laughs> mm. and kind of an air of resignation so we're the mm. ones who have to have the resignation not her so is, is the, that how you read the expression of the cows in the cow shed indeed yeah oh, right, that's right. sad those sad bovine eyes yes that is the, the most extraordinary moment isn't it because she's not she i mean she's she's supposed to be answering questions with her god knows who farm but she's just in the middle of this cow shed and because all the sort of mics are stacked up. It really does look like she's going to do a speech to the cows because there's yeah. no one else there. About freedom of they, movement. <laughs> very, yeah. very good, very good. I'm going to now bash my face against this wall until it breaks. <laughs> um, and so she starts, and the, at the beginning, the cows actually look up for a bit, and then they just think, nah, fuck this, and they look down, they look away as well. It just no, no one can, even the cows can't bring it to themselves. But to the, actually there is form, though, isn't there? Because it's a bit like her talking to the pot plants, you know, which uh, John Crace made a big thing of. Yeah. And, you know, they became the leading characters for a while, didn't they? In, in John Crace's uh, yes. series, because I mean, they seem to be you know, they're the only thing left on the table. You know, and she, she was yeah. there in the pot plants, and so you know the cows. It's the same sort of thing. I know slightly more animate than the yeah. pot plants. But the surprise was that she gave. She seemed to get the same answer to the cows as she gave to the journalists. There were, there were, there were pieces made up and uh, written in every regional um, press outlet, saying things like, "I was given one question." which I had to submit beforehand. And then she gave me the same bloody answer she gives everybody else, the boilerplate about opportunities in the future and the sunny uplands. Mm. Was there any point at all to this, or was it just an old-fashioned bit of showing your face? I do think, you know, Laura Kunzberg, obviously because she's commissioned by the Tories to ask questions that are very helpful <laughs> to the Prime Minister, did manage to get her... <laughs> not the view of the podcast, but carry on not the Not the view of the podcast or anyone with working brain matter. But nevertheless, so did actually manage to get her on the back foot. So she kept on sort of pushing her to say, well, do you think... Do, do you think this is a good idea? Like, you know, what exactly is it that's going to be good that's going to come from this thing? And Theresa, I mean, she would she looked like a sort of 12-year-old girl that was being dragged to the dentist, of just being like, well, no, I mean, I'm vaguely aware someone's told me it might be OK in the end, but this looks very, very painful and awful indeed. And to be honest, the only moment I thought there was actually something 
quite revealing was that. And it's just that constant emotional story that you see in the sort of tremor behind her eyes of the fatigue and the sort of zombified horror of the whole thing, of just having to constantly trundle out this nonsense to something that at this stage... You really don't have to be a sort of body language expert or particularly empathetic to realise that this woman clearly does not believe in, in the thing that she is doing, nor does she think that it's going to do any good for the country. Did we spot that um, in this primary school where Kinsberg was interviewing Theresa May, for some reason there were about four different versions of Edvard Munch's The Scream on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I sort of tweeted on the Remain X account, it's like, has Stanley Kubrick been directing the BBC News again? Because it's just, you know, it, it, you would expect that an enterprise surprising uh, handler would go can we just put up some pictures of flowers and 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 dogs and cats not the abyss of human suffering as a backdrop for the Prime Minister. Maybe Theresa May drew those before she Maybe ran she off. Did. <laughs> well, well, I, it would be better anyway if she did scream, wouldn't it? I, yeah. I, I, felt, you know, I felt that at the conference speech and she, all she could do was cough, but if she'd gone sort of, ah! <laughs> so I don't believe any of this. And this is not actually, this is not actually a, a silly idea because the, the one thing that could win her back some respect in the country I think would be a, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore moment. If she just threw her speech to one side and said fuck this, look, here's what's going on. I don't like it. You don't like it. We've got to get through it as best we can. You would at least see something human there. And you could then possibly, if you were a lever, develop some sort of narrative of like, well, let's, let's do it for Teresa. Let's do it so this poor woman can get out of the endless purgatory she's in at the moment. Well, it's obviously easier for, for a male politician to have moments like that because they're considered passionate and enthusiastic, whereas yeah. if a female politician does it, yeah. they look like they're hysterical and everyone will suddenly say they're out of control and blah, blah, blah. Which is why when you see politicians like Theresa May or like Hillary Clinton, they've spent so many years studiously perfecting that thing of just looking absolutely in control all the time because they know that her demands on them as a woman are so much more severe than any that a male politician would face. Somebody's got to do it first, though, haven't they? Somebody's got to lose their rag first. <laughs> what she could one. at least have done is make the photo opportunity a bit more interesting. She could have started in Glasgow with uh, t- six pints of heavy, deep-fried <laughs> Mars bar, getting into a fight on Socky Hall Street. You We're going to get in so much Scottish trouble for what you're saying Twitter right melting now. now. <laughs> Keep going, oh, Peter. Okay, okay, the Welsh well, next. All right, so, no, the Welsh. Well, save the Welsh. No, that in Northern Ireland, you can go to the you know, West Belfast, the Northern Ireland conflict theme park, and try her hand at a bit of petrol bomb throwing. Uh, oh, then to Southwest England, where she gets on a moped and does a wheelie down the high street in Wivelliscombe. Wouldn't that be great? Are you going to do the Scousers now, Peter? You no, no, have no. To. I'm going to do the Welsh instead because okay. it's Easter, so she'd have to join the chapel goers in a Strudgun Lice in a rousing chorus of Goldie Looking Chain's greatest hits. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that be great? Thank you and goodbye, listeners. It's been lovely having you. (laughs) Okay, staying resolutely within the media bubble, because, hey, that's where we live, is Brexit doing long-term damage to the BBC? On last week's show, we suggested that complaining that the corporation didn't cover protest marches but does cover fish-dumping stunts in the Thames was a bad road to go down because marches just aren't news. Several listeners thought we were a bit too kind on the corporation. Listener Chris Kendall of the excellent Cake Watch podcast put together a great thread describing how the problems with the BBC aren't really a conspiracy. And they're not simply about the overt pro-Brexit bias of presenters like John Humphreys and Andrew Neil either. Instead, they are a toxic product of the BBC's own articles of faith. A fixation on false balance, an addiction to loud and extreme personalities like Farage on shows like Question Time, a deep caution over challenging the government and basic belief that Europe isn't all that important anyway. 
Meanwhile, friend of the show, Andrew Adonis, has been going really over the top about this, casting doubt on the BBC's future and claiming that people are refusing to pay their licence fee. The commentator James Bloodworth says Andrew Adonis's Twitter feed has become the canary for centrists. I thought we were the canary for centrists. I thought that was our job. Uh, literally nobody is happy about this state of affairs. Uh, Remain access and John Patience said, please don't descend into the current fashion for undermining trust in the BBC. A general collapse in trust for institutions is one of the things that mm. gave us Brexit in the first place. It's straight out of the Farage Trump playbook. Peter. You're an ex-BBC man. Do you, do you think its coverage of Brexit has damaged trust in the BBC? Well, I should say it's a long, 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 long time since I left the BBC, but I think something's changed. Mm -hmm. If you go right back to the start of the BBC, there's always been critics on the hard left and the hard right. If you, go, if you remember the 70s and 80s, the Glasgow Media Group used to constantly fire pot shots at the BBC's news coverage, the way it framed stories. And then in the same era, you had all of those things that got the hard right on the Conservative backbenches angry, like the Real Lives documentary in which they interviewed IRA families and the Falklands war coverage and so on. Flash forward to now and, you know, mild-mannered, softy lefty Andrew Adonis is screaming about the mm. Brexit Broadcasting Corporation. Something's changed that, um, you know, that we've always had the hard right and the hard left attacking the BBC, but there was always this solid centre that would defend it. Yeah. They might make minor mm. quibbles about, I don't know, the line-up on Strictly Come Dancing or something, but they would be defenders of the BBC. And they are now finding it harder to sort of stand up and, and, and defend the BBC. And a key thing, belief I have, and especially given some of the people that have been commenting recently, that a lot of this solid centre ground that has been the support base for the BBC are Remainers. Yeah. So I think it has lost uh, in its pretty poor handling of Brexit, its obsession with fake balance, you know, equivalents and so on, and, and it's this obsession with turning everything into a boxing match in which they have to make sure that there's no winner. You know, there's, there's no examination of the facts. There's no saying, well, actually, the facts are on this side, so this side won. It always has to be, always has to end in a fake draw. Yeah. And that, I think, is making it harder for the BBC support base, who I think are largely Remainers, to keep defending it. Yeah, yeah. Ian, do you think mm. it, is, it is fair to say... I think Mike Galsworthy of Scientists for EU put it this way, long-standing defenders of the BBC are giving up in droves. Do you think that's happening? I don't know. I, I, definitely, I, I definitely get the, the analysis that Peter just gave, where I think this is a very dangerous moment for the B because its natural constituency of supporters are basically being alienated right now, and it's never going to get that support from the Corbynite uh, sort of left. It's never going to get that support from the sort of nativist Brexity right. So at the moment, it is losing that support base. It definitely is. I do feel that the sort of chat around it this week has gone that extra bit into, look, I, and I'm not, I really hate these kind of conversations because I sort of have this, especially since the Trump thing, it's just like, you know, no enemies in the open society that we don't sort of I try not to have those bits. But you, you need to, you do need to tackle this stuff where it comes out. And, and I, I do get a hint of a sort of conspiratorial mindset among some of those on my side and the manner in which they're criticising the BBC. Because uh -huh. it's not just the fake balance thing. It's not even just a sort of petrification in the face of sort of Brexit forces and a sort of a, a reassessment of where they think the middle of a debate is. It's something else, and it's uh, James Ball, sort of formerly of The Guardian and BuzzFeed, who's now an economist at The New European, I think said very rightly, sort of spoke out against join the dotism. Yeah. So that sort of attitude of like, this guy was here, he used to work for the Daily Politics, now he used to work for Downing Street, but um, join the dots. This guy is this guy here, they had a meeting here, um, they had a meeting over here, join the dots. Which, in other words, uh, we don't actually have any evidence to show you that anything's happened here. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, these guys know each other. Now, the stench 
is correct. The stench comes from having a very, very, very narrow talent pool that the media and politics operates by, made up primarily of posh, white, middle-aged men. Mm. So in that, do they, lots of them know each other and do they go to the same sort of clubs? Yeah, they absolutely do. You know, and, and that is a problem in and of itself. But that is a separate problem to the problem of saying that these guys are clubbing together and conspiring, especially with some kind of pro-Brexit angle, which really... The BBC is not pushing a pro-Brexit agenda. It is just petrified in the face of very sudden, very aggressive technological, political and sociological change. Yeah. Harry, what do you think? I mean, have you, have you, have well, you viewed the, tele- the BBC's reporting changed? Yeah, I think it has. And I, I'm afraid I'm one of those who, I mean, I, I can't listen to the Today programme anymore. And I used to listen to it every morning. I just can't bear it anymore. Mm. Um, I, I do. I mean, I love Radio 3, but that's a sort of cop out, doesn't it? I, mean, it's a, <laughs> um, I find that Ra- Radio 3 is, Cooper, is very remaining. Cooperan's views on Brexit are yeah. sort of, you know, very soothing. But, um, it's full of and, European uh, composers, though. It's very, uh, very remain, very cosmopolitan. Well, I, I did actually, I did tweet to John Redwood at one point when he was talking absolute rubbish about. English wine. I said, yeah, great, yeah, let's stick to English wine. The total production of English wine is one and a half villages in Beaujolais, by the way, so that will take us a long way. I said, yeah, let's stick to English, let's have Vaughan Williams. Let's not, let's not listen to that Beethoven and Bach crap, you know, let's stick to Vaughan Williams. Now, now I am very worried by it. I, no, to, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I don't think. But what I do think is that they're incredible sort of over-caution, um, and, 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 and particularly this fake balance. But, but that was already evident in their coverage of climate change, which I was picking up for ages because that's one of my sort of pet yeah. subjects. And I was actually a fellow on a think tank connected with the environment. And, I, I've, and that's been going on for several years now. Um, and it is this actually ludicrous situation where you get a top climate scientist pitted against Nigel Lawson, you know, who <laughs> is basically a sort of fossil fuel-funded sort of <laughs> contrarian. Um, but and this is what they've been doing for years on climate change. And then, then tragically, they did the same thing on Brexit. You know, so they, we, I know, nearly all the economists I know, are, you know, you know are, are united in thinking that Brexit will be damaging for the economy. There is one economist called Patrick Minford, yes. you know, who... Uh, Not a friend of the show. Uh, <laughs> um, who, well, need I say more? But I mean, but so they wheel him on an incredible number of times, which has absolutely no relation to his standing as an economist. So, and so that's, I don't think they're all a conspiracy, and I don't even know whether Humphreys and... I, mean, I think Neil, I think, probably is pro-Brexit. I don't know about Humphreys. But I, so I don't think it's a conspiracy, but I think it's a tragedy. And but I can't listen to the news coverage anymore. You could say that there's absolutely nothing wrong with having presenters who are pro-Brexit and pro-Remain, provided they're allowed to take that position, and that, that maybe uh, a new take on the BBC, a new royal charter, which said that within the BBC's broadcasting output, you could have the Andrew Neil show and Good Morning with Owen Jones. Oh, God. You could have, well, no, you say that. <laughs> Terrible. It does idea. sound like a vision of hell. It yeah, sounds it like does, a vision yeah. of hell, but you wouldn't have to no, watch it. No, and it would be part of the panoply of no, stuff. A, I think there's another solution. This would be my preferred solution for the BBC. I think I was peddling this back in the 90s when I worked there, which is that the BBC needs to f- definitively escape from the orbit of Parliament it's the BBC isn't under the thumb of government, it's under the thumb of Parliament. They're terrified and any sort of special interest groups that orbit around Parliament. What they, I would like to see it done is be turned, it turned into something like a building society that ha, is a mutual, uh, it is independent, it has a charter that says what it can and can't do. And the charter should say not that it's impartial, but it's, that it's objective. Ah, objective, different thing. Mm. So, in other words, instead of having these pointless round mm. things where they think they seem to think it's a success if the two sides just shouted at each other and sounded like they had an equal amount of shouting, they will say, right, let's examine the facts in this case. By all means, brings it, bring in people from either side. But you say, actually, well, you've you've got facts on your side and you haven't. That's the end of the item. In other words, leave the listener with the, 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 an idea of who's got the facts on their side. Mm. You can you can do that. 
Uh, and I would be prepared to I'll accept the BBC not being exactly in tune with my own personal opinions if it did that, as long as it were ob objective. Hmm. And it would probably cost us all more if it, if it, would, if it were freed up from the government licence fee settlement, but it would be worth it. Uh, it's a very good idea, by the way. Especially, I mean, that distinction between objective and is very, very useful. Um, we can, can we also sort of distinguish between different kinds of bad interviewing or different kinds of bias in this sort of thing? I think when you look at John Humphreys, he, he's got to be put out to pasture. Like, he's done. You know, yeah. he's, he's over. He has no intellectual engagement with what he's asking about. He is quite demonstrably biased, I think, in, in the manner in which he goes about things. And you learn nothing from any interview that he does. Not just on his bias, but also because of his inability to grasp detail. Then you take someone like Andrew Neil. I mean, Andrew Neil um, is quite plainly pro-Brexit. But I see him doing a pretty good job, yeah. actually, when he does interviews. He's forensic, he's well-researched. I don't feel that he's giving a much easier time to the Brexit guys than he does to the Remain guys. So I am, frankly, unfussed about the fact that when you look at his Twitter feed, it's obviously the Twitter feed of someone who supports Brexit, because when he does his job, he is doing yeah. the job. Well, I think, I think you're right. The last thing we want to be doing is running some sort of ideological purity test on who's exactly. good and who isn't. Mm. And, you know, that, that lends you to sort of, you know, Twitter mobbing Laura Kinsberg for imagined slights and imagined... You know, like, mm. It's just it's, it's, it's a bad, bad road to go down. But you're right, you know, in, in that um, I am serenely happy with uh, pro or anti-Brexit journalists, you know, in their private life, as long as they do their job on the air. And there's a, a, a suspicion abroad that they're not, isn't there? Well, there, I mean, and a lot of that comes down to, I mean, I, I think you look at some of the stuff that say Ben Goldacre would put out about science coverage in the press over the last 10 years. And that really helps when you look at the way that people, that trade experts and economists have been treated since the vote. And suddenly, after the referendum, politics has become fundamentally a technocratic issue wrapped up in this identity politics clothing. But ultimately, Brexit is very, it requires very deep knowledge and very broad knowledge. And that's something that political journalists typically do not have. So suddenly they get a Minford paper. I mean, the most spectacular nonsense, every page of it, just obviously false. And then it is put up there without any kind of caveats, without any kind of context to show that this is not what the majority or even, you know, almost anyone in that kind of community believes. Because there is such a failure of scientific and of sort of empirical understanding in the journalists that write this stuff. Yeah. Getting back to now, though, I mean, people today saying they're going to stop paying their licence fee because they're unhappy with Brexit coverage is just as batty as people refusing to pay their licence fee because they're unhappy with anything else the BBC might have done. You know, it's, it's just mm. like, pay your licence fee. Shut up, stop moaning about it. Don't make a, don't make a fool of yourself. Don't almost, make a fool almost, of yourself. Pay your bloody licence fee. As, as with all these things, almost nobody is going to not pay their licence fee. Mm. It's, you know, it's just, that's just empty talk, isn't it? It is, yes. Which is why I find it strange that people like Andrew Adonis are sort of putting this out as, as, if, it's a, as if it's a thing in the world. Instead of mad pub talk. It's, I mean, and again, it's worth us pointing out, and it's not like there's anything to learn here by the difference between public sort of service broadcasting or whether private sector should be doing it, but that Sky are having a really good Brexit. Sky mm. News has been good. It's not just Fights with Islam. Mm. It's generally their coverage has... I don't think you can look at it and say that it's Remain or Leave. I just don't. And I think that they've been looking at the details, providing them in a package mm. that's generally quite palatable to people who have only a sort of relative level of interest in this sort of stuff. But in about four minutes, they can tell you something quickly about mm. sheep farming or whatever. And you come away thinking, you know what? Actually, I do actually yeah. understand, I yeah. think, a bit more about how this bid operates. And it's yeah. a pretty good model right now for the way the BBC should be doing things. Yeah, I know. I, I, must, I, I, I watch the BBC News. I, it does seem like something really terrible has happened to it. And that, you know, that any minute they might have the sort of martial music might start playing. You know, <laughs> sort of, sort of Hugh Edwards would just 
carry on smiling or something, <laughs> and you really feel that they're all terrified of something, yeah. and that something really awful has happened. You know, which of course it, it has. <laughs> I'm just um, reminded by Ian's phrase. I just th- this phrase: "Who's having a good Brexit?" puts the fear of God into me because it contains with it the assumption that there might be another Brexit later where you can have a better one. <laughs> What's the next Brexit going to be? Like? I don't think I can face it. Oh God, how depressing. Anyway, it's not all gloom. And there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repenteth than over 99 just persons who need no such repentance. Over the weekend, Vote Leave volunteer Dami Olatuyi wrote a piece for The Guardian saying there is that there absolutely should be a referendum on the final terms of leaving. He identified the narrow referendum majority, the Cambridge Analytica aggregate IQ scandal and Theresa May's lukewarm reception of the general election as reasons why we need to have a definitive say on the final exit deal. He, a Vote Leave volunteer, says he's going to spend the next year campaigning for that referendum after all, he said, I'm one of the people who got us into this mess. So if believers are coming out for a final say referendum, that is significant, isn't it? Peter, it takes a lot for Leavers to recant. Should we be applauding this? Uh, so, of course, yes. I mean, there is the, obviously there's an argument against getting too excited about all the Cambridge Analytica stuff, because as we're seeing now, that the, the whistleblowers, all sorts of stuff is being dug up on them to try to discredit them and so on. And, uh, you know, one could make the fair point that the Remain side... Uh, you know, was very well funded, including the famous government leaflet that cost a lot of money mm. through everybody's door and so on. However, um, to borrow a phrase that Timothy Garton-Ash used in The Observer the other day, thanks for that, it, it's all, it's fertile ground for opening up a conversation, a broader conversation. Mm-hmm. If you've got people's attention with the idea that there was lots of very, very fishy stuff going on here. We don't know whether it was cheating yet, but it's, you know, people are making that allegation, etc., etc. You know, you think again, you might want to re-examine your views if you feel that you've been manipulated in all of this, and, you know, that gets you started on the, all the other issues. Is this, is this, in fact, a good idea, what we're about to do? It's a way to open up the conversation. So uh, that, that in itself would be useful. We talked a little bit about this last week but when you weren't here. It's one thing to say, to ask someone, do they personally believe the referendum result is, is, is tainted in some way? Do you believe that the people are beginning to think that it is tainted in some kind of irreparable well, I think there's some, there's some polling evidence that suggests people are, you know, beginning to, to have doubts. And we, we know we're still we're still a long way off the the, the, the moment of truth uh, in kind of October when the government comes back and says, here's the deal to Parliament. And so there's plenty of time for these doubts to build up. And there's presumably plenty more investigation. The Electoral Commission investigation is still ongoing. You know, it's rather like the people who say, look, we've had Brexit and the economy hasn't collapsed, to which your answer is, well, actually, we haven't had the Brexit yet. Uh, Likewise, you know, this Electoral Commission investigation, there's nothing to it. Well, they haven't reported yet. They haven't Mm. finished their investigation yet, as far as Mm. I know. So let's see. Mm. Um, FT columnist Wolfgang Munchau wrote over the weekend that he thinks the moment for revoking Brexit has passed and Remainers should concentrate on what happens after we've left. He said that there are four reasons why Brexit won't be stopped. There is a broad agreement on how we're going to withdraw. The economy hasn't collapsed. The opposition to Brexit is fragmented. We've talked about that on the show in the past. And the EU themselves have moved on. They're thinking about other things. All we need, he says, are the right weasel words to sort out the Irish border. Dead easy. So, Ian, what did you think about this idea? There's quite a lot of it around, actually, of this sort of... I find it quite giver-uppery sort of stuff of, oh, look, kind of, it's over, we're done. Which is odd, because it actually contrasts very badly with sort of the optimism and the momentum that's felt by a lot of Remain groups that you sort of saw in that Leeds march. Yeah. Um, it's quite irritating to me because it's based on a distinction which I don't think really exists and has been there since the beginning of this among Remainers, which is, do you give up on the fight for staying in and only fight to ameliorate the worst outcome, i.e., do you go for soft Brexit? Or 
do you just sort of make sure and make it's all about trying to stop Brexit, trying to reverse Brexit? And in fact, to even talk about soft Brexit, as you know, for instance, Open Britain had done as a group at the beginning, which they were much hated for by the Remainers. And it's a sort of form of treason against your fellow <laughs> liberal open society people. Yeah. You think like this is just a false dichotomy. You can fight for two things at the same time and any workable strategy will have an optimum outcome that it is trying to achieve and a damage limitation yeah. outcome that it is trying to achieve. And I would strongly advise that you do this whenever, you know, you're next having an argument with your, your loved one to think what is my optimal outcome here and what's my damage <laughs> limitation strategy and you should damn well have that in your back pocket. So with this, it, this whole thing of like, well, we can't be bothered to... Re- it was never likely that, that Article 50 would be revoked, but it is nowhere near impossible, right? You know, yeah. And ultimately, when people say there's no way this can happen... They seem to be predicting with extraordinary confidence. And again, I'm staggered by the amount of confidence people use when predicting things in politics, given the things that have happened over the last couple of years, that absolutely no matter what happens with that motion, when it comes back to Parliament, this will still happen. You just think that you have no basis at all to show that level of confidence on an event that is almost by definition profoundly and violently chaotic, that no one could really predict to you the way that that thing shakes out. So to then come and sort of very, very confidently write it all down, I just think is is an utter load of nonsense. And I do wish that more Remainers would stop being quite so fatalistic about this thing. It isn't over yet by any shot. Well, I, I tweeted that story over the weekend and said, hmm, you know, this guy says the moments has passed. We should be thinking about something else. What do we think about that? And the response was completely be surprised. Fuck off, are you? <laughs> Shut up! No! Never, never, never give in! Never surrender! Never, ever, ever, ever! Calm down, lads. Come on. It's, it's, we can think about this in other ways. But it is the sort of thing, it's exactly the sort of thing I think that Theresa May wanted to project in her tour yes. of Britain. Yes. Uh, you know, you had Polly, Polly Toynbee the other day said a very similar thing to Wolfgang Munko. She started off her column saying, you know, the, the, the hard Brexiters are beginning to realise how toxic this thing's in. It sounded like she was going to be very, very mm. anti-Brexit. But then at the end she says, I wish I could think of a way that we can stop this, but oh, I've given up kind of thing. So you're hearing all this. This is, this is, you know, they're rubbing their hands with glee in Downing Street at this, and they've also presumably been looking at this YouGov poll which says that even 55% of Remain voters, that's one percentage point more than Leave voters say they're fed up with it all and fed up with Brexit that's what they want, you know, that's what the government wants mm. we want you to be fed up, to stop looking and we'll just shove it through whatever we can Well there's a very easy way to make the people who are fed up with Brexit happy, that's to just forget about Brexit and yes. drop Brexit and then we can all fight about something else and also, I found it. I found Munchau's piece pretty annoying uh, as well, for various reasons, I mean I mean, the, the thing about the economy hasn't collapsed. I mean, we haven't had Brexit yet. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. that's absolute mm. rubbish. I'm surprised that's printed in the FT, actually. I, mean, I, I thought that was extraordinary. But then the, this idea of giving up, and did, did the Brexiters um, give up? I mean, you know, they kept, they kept on at it for 40 years, you know. So mm. why do we suddenly give up after a few months? I mean, yeah. they're, they're they're a, pathetic. They're, I think you're right to that there's a lot of... There's a lot of people who are just quite fed up with the whole thing, especially on our, in fact, and I'm sort of not basing this on anything more than talking to friends and family, most of whom just think, it's just, I just feel depressed every time it comes on. Yeah. And there's no vehicle to express their anger because there's no particular party that's able to do it. The Lib Dems are sort of off and the other two have gone completely insane. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you've got all the anger but nowhere to direct it to. And I think it's, as it's a actually very English, isn't it? I mean, it sort of yeah. reminds me of my own family, actually, because we're, you know, I, I can remember so many conversations where something was about to be said and then my grandmother said, oh, the weather is uh, tanned a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, it? and, uh, it's and it's, like, it's of, like talking about your, your uncle's affair or something. Uh, or the, you know, just, uh, just this English thing about you know, whatever you do, just don't talk yeah. about it. You know, yes. you know, it's just you know, better not to go yes. there. You know, and, uh, and Uncle Brian's so, alcoholism. I'm, afraid, Don't talk about that. I'm <laughs> afraid there is this sort of default position, and uh, actually, I think it's—I mean, that's a joke, but it's quite serious. Well. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think that has happened actually from the very beginning with Brexit. I mean, it's there is this English reluctance to 
you know, really talk about something and get excited and, and go. I mean, of course, not among you guys, but uh, I mean, there is an English thing which is very, it's very different. I, I lived in Spain for a year, and one of the, I, I, I loved the sort of passion that was sort of, you know, you could be passionate without, it wasn't seen as offensive to be passionate. But like one of the reasons I had to go to Spain, I think, was that I stopped getting invited to dinner parties because I used to get very heated about various <laughs> subjects. And, uh, I wasn't actually didn't think I was being aggressive, but I, but uh, in England, in certain circles, that doesn't go down well. In Spain, it's fine; no one yeah. takes it personally. Everyone gets excited and passionate. But in England, it's not like that. Well, our, our Scot- Scottish, Welsh, and Irish listeners, not to mention our other listeners elsewhere in Europe, will be, I'm sure, making the point that uh, you know, Brexit is in many ways an English phenomenon. You know, it's like. <laughs> It's it's England asserting itself over the smaller countries, and that sort of reticence is all you know. If that's imposed on uh, the other countries in the union, that is itself an unhealthy thing. We've been hearing from him throughout the show. Our special guest Henry is co-writer of Johnson's Brexit Dictionary, which is out now. Henry, thanks for coming on the show. Where did the idea for the book come from? Well, and it, it was slightly sort of intuitive in a way. I, my friend George Myerson and I, you know, we studied together a long time ago. We studied English literature and, and Latin to some extent, because in those days you had to do a bit of Latin. You know, I'm talking way back in the 19th century, of course. Great times. <laughs> I'm that old. But um, we spent quite a lot of time just going through old texts uh, and, we, and finding kind of surprising modern kind of uh, resonances. And we, we stumbled upon Johnson's Dictionary, which, of course, is a very famous uh, text. And I'd, I'd actually never properly looked at it. And... Uh, when I started reading it, I thought this is this is the most amazing book. Uh, actually, the preface itself is like a masterpiece. You know, it is in, it is an amazing work of literature, and you know it's actually much better in my view than any dictionary that has come after it. I mean, of course, it's much more personal, yeah. and it's also full of wonderful quotations. And the definitions are are amazingly precise and rich in many cases. And uh, just as we went through it, we suddenly started getting this idea that some of these words could actually be tweaked a little, all the definitions could be tweaked because we start in every case with a real bit of Johnson and it tweaks into something Brexity. Um, mm. and we found this was quite a sort of productive approach and then we started making up you know, cod Shakespeare quotations which was quite fun um, so parts of it are really quite silly but you know, Johnson's dictionary is full of Shakespearean quotations and other quotations uh, and so we, we felt that was quite appropriate and we invented a few characters you know, well, one of them being Sir Boris de Johnson who appears quite a lot in this dictionary <coughs> our little dictionary that is uh, and uh, Master Nigel Shallow you know, and, uh, who, well, there's, who, a, there's a great definition I spotted uh, a bozza a part of any work ill-finished so as to appear worse than the rest. Uh, <laughs> Sir Boris was well-named for the sobriquet Bozza, for he did patch his career together from rags and shreds. Yes. But I mean, so what we thought was incredible is that Johnson was such a prophet, and who would have guessed that Bozza would have been in there? Yeah. And it comes actually under his definition of botch, to be absolutely fair, because <laughs> his definition of botch then gives the Italian word Bozza, pronounced Bozza. Bozza. Um, but then he has Bozza there, you know, so there's Bozza. You know, and uh, mm. and uh, you know, actually, it's a wonderful definition. It's actually better than anyone's ever come up with. You know? And he, he also has things like bots and trolls and oh, wow. all it's sorts of bots. things. Bots. bots, yes. It's a, it's a disease found in horses, but you know, it's also it's a kind of you know, it's a d- disease, a disease that the body affects politic. the body politic. Yeah. So, I mean, it's wow. amazing what a prophet he was. And, uh, yeah, I mean. um, actually, I, mean, I, I, see, I think he, you know, not meaning absolutely literally, but I mean, some of his definitions are just so good. Um, so I think what he's so good at are these sort of figurative or metaphorical definitions. He's very good at, you know, the word cold, you might think, was a, you know, well, how do you define cold? It's not difficult. It's not hot, is it? I mean, <laughs> yeah. and so, I mean, the Johnson definition, this is all Johnson, by the way. So cold, not hot, not warm, without warmth, without heat, unaffected, 
frigid, unaffecting, unable to move the passions, reserved, coy, not affectionate, not cordial, not friendly, not welcome, not received with kindness or warmth of affection. So I, I just felt I had to put this little Shakespeare quote, which I found by chance. "'Twas a cold May, which did freeze the buds right off." Um, so very fortunate we found that. But it just like, has anyone come up with a better de- definition of Theresa May than that? I mean, it just has all of it, you know, and it, he's just such a genius. You know, I, I like the ones where you kind of extrapolate it into, uh, into new things. Uh, one was Kickshaw, a, a dish so changed by the cooking that it can scarcely be known. Is that a real one? It's a real one, yeah. Because that's you, totally you, real. That's all Johnson. Yeah, that's you, a Johnson word. That's really yeah. like, yeah. You turn that into Brexshaw, sometimes coarsely Brexshit, an enterprise <laughs> so changed by negotiation that it can scarcely be recognised, with the quote, I am but mad north-north-west. When the wind is southerly, I can tell a Bjork from a Brexshaw. Which I thought was particularly good. <laughs> but it was all, yeah, I mean, that was, I remember doing that, and it just sort of came, I mean, you know, we were having fun, to be honest, which yeah. is a rare thing to be saying when we're talking about Brexit. Well, this is it. It's we've a kind of miracle. Few, <laughs> we've had a few comedians on the show, and, and uh, they have said more often than not it's really hard to get gags out of Brexit because it's so bloody depressing you end up making gags about the sort of people about Brexiteers and Brexiters um, which can make you look a bit mean can make you look a, a little bit snooty well, and be a very elite that they moan yeah, about. You can be a little bit mean, you know. <laughs> but this They're is attacking quite, the language. This is using the language, language to make points, isn't it? I quite like the one I found, which was uh, scientropy, which is um, the kind of madness in which men have the qualities of dogs, which actually some, if you're very learned, you might remember in the Duchess of Malfi, I believe somebody is afflicted by this kind of madness. But so scientropy, but I come with Breck scientropy, which is a, a species of madness in which men go barking, oft times in barking. <laughs> and, and so we're allowed country. to be about barking, um, which are probably not. Um, well, yeah. barking, very mixed place. Underworld come from barking, of course. Lager, lager, mm. shouting. Lager, 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 shouting, of course, being itself very Brexity, but I don't think Underworld would call themselves Brexities. There's a, a, one of the, my favourite definitions in here was, is the word leadsome. Uh, lead man, one who begins or leads a dance. So, leadsome, one capable of leading a portion of a party a merry dance, though apt to break off abruptly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's all in there. And also, amazing, another, amazing what a prophet he was. I know, yeah. yeah. And, uh, a particularly, uh, you know, cleverly put together one. Uh, Higarometer from a hygrometer instrument used to measure the degrees of moisture. Hence, instrument used to measure the degrees of hygge, or Danish style coziness. This hygge is said by some to be consolation in time of Brexit. <laughs> so get your hygrometers out there. I was wondering which other beloved literary voices would work for a Brexit book, and I thought uh, possibly the secret diary of Adrian Gove, age 13 and a quarter. Uh, Tuesday, back my friend Boris. Wednesday, stab my friend Boris in the back. Adrian Mole actually did say, <laughs> I am an intellectual, but at the same time, I am not very clever. So that suits. You should do it. <laughs> Woodhouse, of course, Code of the Reese Moggs. There's that oft-quoted quote from Code of the Worcesters. What the voice of the people is saying is, look at that frightful ass Spode swanking about in footer bags. Did you ever in your puff see such a perfect parisher? There's <laughs> Nigel for you. Um, no, we, but- like, we, like, we like Woodhouse a lot, yeah. Um, no, I, I know, he, he's a... He's a uh, you know, comic genius. I think. I yeah. think. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I. I. I think there are there are others. I mean, actually, Shakespeare and Brexit. I think is you know is, comes quite a bit in our little literary. But I think you could ex- you could have a whole book of Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare of course has everything in him, and it's, it might be a slightly more tragic. You know, well, version, what do you think but, he would uh, have done with it? Because of course he was the original will of the people. 
<laughs> I mean, I think it could be a tragedy. As I, I mean, yeah, I think it has a, to be a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, there was one of my quotes was, "What's here besides foul Brexit weather?" <laughs> Which is a yeah. sort of slightly changed quote from King Lear. I mean, it's, I think it's a bit of a King Lear moment, you know. So. Yes. I know, maybe you could find a comedy about it, but yeah, it's uh, all Blasted Heath's fault, isn't it? And yeah. he got got his in there. Blasted Heath, yeah, yeah. All his fault. Yeah, I, <laughs> I have seen uh, Brexit produced by a bear used as a headline. Uh, I think the bear was a bear market or something. But eventually, this was where I thought Johnson was so brilliant because when we obviously we had to define Brexit, which is you know, well we know that Brexit means Brexit. So I mean, I don't, you know, who needs more than that? You know, if you're, if you're writing a dictionary, all you need is circular definitions. It's very easy. You know, so that's Theresa May's dictionary of Brexit. But anyway. Um, when Johnson was talking about, of course, Brexit comes from exit, you know, so when he was thinking about exit, Johnson uh, was a man who loved the theatre. You know, he was a great friend of David Garrick, the great actor and Shakespearean, Johnson's great Shakespearean scholar. So the first thing he said about exit, this is the very first thing he says, is exit, the term set in the margin of plays to mark the time at which the player goes off stage, <laughs> recess, departure, act of quitting the stage, act of quitting the theatre of life. So, you know, this obviously was very relevant to Brexit. Brexit became the term set in the margin of history to mark the time at which Britain wanders towards the edge of the stage, act of trying to quit the stage of history. Um, Perfectly appropriate, it, yes. It actually sort of brings it all to life. You know, Theresa May just trying to kill everything. I mean, she's just trying to reduce it to this sort of little pellet of nothingness. You know, that's, that's my vision of her. You know, she just, everything is just reduced to nothing. How, how, long, how long is Johnson's? Did you, I mean, does he really... It's huge. Get... It's huge. It's like a great, you know, the single volume edition is weighs half, you know, you can it's just about lift it. And, it, and it's, uh, he spent, was it eight years doing it or something? And uh, it's an amazing achievement, actually. I really recommend it. I mean, it's such fun to read. I did mean, he, have, did a, he ever have help? I mean, was it, was it, was it just yeah, literally he, a man he, in a he had some fra- He had some sort of clerical help. But I didn't know that anyone. I think he did all the defining and uh, amazing achievement. But he was it was a commission. Yeah, he was a freelance. He was given this commission. He thought he could do it in two years. He was very rude about the French. This is slightly awkward for us. Because Hang on. He <laughs> thought he could do it in two years, and he was really rude about the French. That sounds no, no, I, I really, really familiar. I don't know what it is. It's tip of my brain. Yeah, you, got, you got a point there. But the, the thing was that the French dictionary <laughs> undertaken by the, the Académie Française had taken 40 scholars, something like 40 years. You know, so mm-hmm. Lunches, Johnson, you see. Uh, Long lunches. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I won't make any uh, <laughs> Brexit sort of, uh, related comments on that. But uh, he, he, was, he thought he could do it in two years. I think it took him eight years. But it's still an incredible achievement. And it is actually, it has just jokes you know he made jokes in the dictionary as, as is quite well known but he hid them away so that's another thing we thought gave us a bit of a license you know to put a few more in there the famous joke about oats you know which in, in england is the grain given to horses and in scotland it supports the people um so we come with broats you know to the broats is the kind of coarse grain on which the britons will subsist after brexit which yeah i fear it could be all too true <laughs> Well, that's Johnson's Brexit Dictionary, available in uh, shops that sell books right now. OK, let's do a bit of Ask Romaniacs, as promised, where our panel, and Harry, if two of you fancies it, will answer your questions. We asked you for them on Twitter this week, and here we go. JJ asks, if there were to be a people's vote on the final deal, what new arguments could the Remain side make to appeal to those who voted for Brexit in the last referendum? What new things can we say to move the dial? Well, I'd also add, what about the 28% of the electorate who didn't yeah. vote? Very, very, very important. If we, if we do get to a second referendum, I think they'll find it easier to say, actually, let's not do this, than the people who have already gone on the record, if you like, because yeah. everybody's expressed their opinion on this. The obvious thing to say is, is it worth it? What are we actually gaining here? What actual taking back control are we getting and we, are we likely to get? Even if we flounce off without an agreement, we're not going to get much back. Those sorts of arguments. 
rather than you know saying it's all about racism or whatever uh, actual practical arguments um I, you know i don't think it's an easy thing to do people don't change their mind like that they don't say oh now you come to mention it i think you're right nobody ever does that but you can keep the drip feed of saying well actually why are we doing this mm. why are we doing this if it's not leading us anywhere wonderful there are no sunlit uplands uh, they're not going to be these wonderful trade deals that compensate for all the trade we're going to lose, etc. So what's the point of it? Mm. Ian, any further, any new things we can throw in? To- so I, I can't, I'm not very good at sloganeering, but um, certainly the lesson has to be taken directly from the winning Brexit campaign. And it has to be a multi-pronged insurgent campaign against the status quo. They're the status quo. They've been the status quo for two years. The argument would be they have made a terrible hash of this thing, just like you knew they would. And you can bring up some of the new the YouGov polling actually on cheating during during the campaigns, even though I don't think it's been proven that it would have led to a different result. But it doesn't have to taint the result, to taint the quality and the competence of the people that have been trying to execute it. To say what exactly is it that you're getting, and to combine that with a bigger message about what then is given back in the event of a Remain vote. It can't be that this is just about resetting a status quo. It has to be about saying that we understand that communities feel that they've been left behind in terms of not just money, but also their sense of control over their destiny, control over industry, and that there are answers to those things. So multi-pronged, insurgent, and crucially, not defending a retreat back to the status quo. I mean, and I, I think I agree with, with both um, Peter and Ian, but, but uh, I, I think the thing to say is that the, the, the re- referendum question didn't specify a destination. It said you know, leave, but it didn't say where to. You know. So now we know what the possible places we could go to are. And uh, you know, one of them might be Norway, one of them might be Canada, one of them is over a cliff. And <laughs> are, are any of those better than staying in the EU? No, they're not. They're actually worse. It's just, it's quite, you know, just be quite you know, cool and calm about it. So we, now we know what it means. And un- unfortunately, none of those things are actually going to do any good. So time for a rethink. And yeah. that's, that's one possibly over-rational approach. OK, a person with the incredible name of Zetetek Elinch asks, does the DUP sincerely believe that there can be no hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and between Northern Ireland and Great Britain? If so, how can they hold such a delusion? And when will this delusion become untenable? This is one of the 64 million punt questions, isn't it? Yeah, but the reason they believe it is because they're functionally insane. Um, okay. I mean, they're a bunch of gibbering religious loons, and they are, they always have been. I mean, that they, they're like that on almost every issue that there is, and I don't mean that even as an act of sort of offensiveness against most religions, although I don't particularly have any time for religion, but it's, it's more that these guys are that proper far end of the religious spectrum of you've just lost your marbles, and they always have. So whether they... The sort of line between are they cynical and do they really believe it? You just sort of think like they're just a bunch of gibbering lunatics. So they say this stuff. There's no consequence, no sense of causation, no sense of responsibility about the politics that they put across. You know, so I mean, who cares, really? I mean, well, they, they are care. a phenomenon more than they are a political party. And by phenomenon, I mean specifically a psychological phenomenon. That's, that may be true, but we have to care because it's got real political consequences. And, and just saying you're all nuts is not necessarily a way to deal with it. Peter, yeah, what I do you think? I think it sounds I, quite I fun think, myself. I think <laughs> the, the, you know, the, there's an assumption that they're doing long-term thinking and, and thinking wh- where this is going to end up. We're, we're doing the long-term thinking. Hang on a second. How could, how could, apart from staying in the 
customs union and the single market. How can you fix this problem? We're doing the long-term thinking. They're thinking the short-term, that nice big check from Theresa May, um, a little bit of sort of, you know, we're on your side, you know, we're fighting for you, we're winning things to you among their electorates and so on, and just generally doing their kind of sabre-rattling that they like to do that pleases a certain part of their own crowd. So that it seems to me that they're doing very, very short-term thinking and not looking at, hang on a second, if this is an enormous screw-up, will we get the blame for it? They're not asking themselves that, I suspect. Hmm. I think they are a bunch of religious nutters. But on the other hand, if somebody gives you a big cheque for a billion pounds and say, will you, you know, the only, you, have, you have to hold an untenable belief in order to receive this cheque, then you, you might say, OK, I'll hold an untenable belief. do I belief. sign? <laughs> yeah. Kerry Shields asks... If Boris's flipped coin had come down the other way, what are the boisterous, simple, engaging arguments he'd have been pushing for the Remain campaign? Is there anything we could learn for reaching undecideds? What do you think? I think it would have been just the same old blather, just on our side rather than the other side. I think he's just a windbag. He's just... Uh, so I don't think I think you know he would have made the same plodding rousing sort of uh, argument sprinkled with a few classical he would have banged on about Churchill wouldn't he would have said Churchill yeah. Churchill built the EU yeah, basically yeah. we built the EU it's ours so we should stay in it now Ian what do you think channel you're in a Boris what you're, what you're well, in we don't need to I mean we saw remember we, we've sort of seen the, the kind of alternative that he would put across and he was basically and, and the argument I think is a pretty good one where he just sort of said it's a pretty good deal overall like it's not like you know it's like the, the saviour of everything it's like overall you look at the single market you look at what we give up you look at what we give back and you think overall that's a pretty good deal. And that's yeah. not a bad way, especially when you're doing a column of talking about things. The rest of it then is just what can you learn from his manner? Because it was the manner that he has which is important mm. rather mm. than the content mm. of what he does. Yeah. In that context, it was very important to have him and Gove who provided a sense of sort of right-wing respectability to Tory voters who might otherwise think, you know, Farage and that lot are going to are going to cock up the entire country. By having this sort of more authority, and for some people, unfortunately, Boris is authoritative in that respect, it was a reassuring presence. But you can. I would like to suggest something a little deeper. There's actually a very early uh, news night under um, Evan Davis when he just took over, when they were making a real effort to be less combative after Paxman went. And he sits down with Boris, and it's by far the most revealing Boris interview I've seen because he doesn't try to take him out or anything. He basically starts asking questions about how he communicates. And Boris's stuff is always about referring to real physical objects in the world, to, to, to start using Anglo-Saxon words and to speak quite plainly and in terms of reference to things that you can imagine in your head rather than sort of political abstractions. Mm. And that and any kind of sort of armoury of political rhetoric mm. is undoubtedly the way to go and something that you can learn from him. And, and remember what he said about Prosecco and Antipasto, you know, like that I'm very Prosecco, pro, I don't know, yes. Prosecco, yeah. and I'm not Antipasto either. So I, I'm very Prosecco and I, I don't want to pay more for my Prosecco, which I bloody well have to do. I don't want to pay <laughs> more of yeah. my antipasto either so you know what's the point mm. um phil door on twitter again asks what sort of things do remainers do that you'd rather they didn't do or did differently I mean, a million times we've gone over it. i just i think trying to discredit the result pretending that the mandate isn't there is, is not a very sensible idea and i don't think it's sensible to do that either by recasting and saying that for a referendum you need it to be 60 percent or something because that just weren't the rules or would say that it was advisory because ultimately that's not how it was taken and the government was quite clear that that wasn't how it'd be taken it would be absurd to pretend otherwise now, or to start saying that we absolutely definitively know right now that the result is invalid on the basis of some stuff about Cambridge Analytica, which we're nowhere near being able to demonstrate. All of that stuff, I think, is unwise and unhelpful, and just it just feels to me like cheating. And if I feel that way, then I can only imagine yeah, how the people you got to win over feel. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say all of the above, but plus one other kind of smallish thing that I sometimes hear some remainers 
uh, Remainers who are politically themselves on the left, forgetting that the Conservatives are not all um, hardline pro-Brexiteers. Mm. It's not a Tory project. It was the Tory government that brought in the referendum and recommended to a Remain vote. And there are lots of Conservative MPs, candidates, mm. activists and so on who are still Remainers. So rather than sort of slapping a label, making them all into Rees Mogg, these are people to bring on board because... When it comes to a vote on on the deal, the more Conservative MPs who rebel, the better. Yeah, Yeah. and a a Subaru is more valuable than a, I don't know... Chris Williamson or somebody, you know, uh, you know, in terms of... And a Farage in the bush, yes. A Farage in the bush, my God, yes. what a thought. Simon Gardner had several questions, but here are two of them. What alternative leadership of Conservative and Labour parties are most likely to ensure return to EU membership in the shortest time? Anybody on the on the benches, rising stars, anybody looking like they're a kind of get-us-back-into-Europe type? It seems to me if we leave, it's going to be such a long time before we go back in, if indeed the EU survives as leaving. I mean, it's, it is, you know, it's it, the, the, the other countries have remained remarkably unified yeah. so far in their negotiating approach, but it's a huge trauma to have Britain taken out of the Union and all the stuff that's going to follow from that. And they're, you know, they're going to be in this awful mm-hmm. situation. They're going to try to, to minimise the damage without making it feel as though Britain has been rewarded for leaving and demanding mm-hmm. a special deal. So... But- Yes, I, I think that's probably right. But, I mean, I would come up with Amber Rudd as a possibility. You know, and I, I think she's relatively sensible and uh, yeah. has some ability and some... You yeah. know, and, and, the, and Chuka Ramuna, I mean, I, I'm slightly dubious about him as I always thought he was a bit of a Chukarist rather than anything else. But uh, he has ha- actually been doing rather well on Brexit. So th- th- those are the two names I'd put forward. Yeah. Ian? I think almost anyone in Labour that's not sort of in the Corbyn camp would want to get back in. Whether whether the political climate around them, the environment would allow that to take place, I think is, is another matter entirely and a much more difficult question to answer. In terms of the Conservatives, unless something fundamentally changes, my problem is the membership. Now, you can have MPs select, we'll get the, the numbers down of the two sort of new leadership candidates down to two. And I think Amber Rudd could potentially, and she's the one to go for, really, you know, quite right, quite right. But she could make it into that. But no matter who she would go, she would have another Brexiter or certainly a deep Eurosceptic with her when it goes to the membership. And the membership will always go with the other. But I just I can't see any scenario in which the Tory party membership would select someone with either a brain or a spine. So basically the prime minister is going to take us back into Europe is sitting around playing Minecraft right now somewhere. No, I think on the Labour, you know, on, on the Labour backbenchers, there are some incredibly talented people and almost all of them would want to do that. I, I just can't see it happening under the current sort of constituent parts of the Conservative Party. Simon's other question was, will you put a burgundy-coloured cover on your blue passport? Well, it could be claret. I mean, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Wine distinction there. I'm going to put a Romaniac sticker on my oh, right. passport cover so that when I go up to the passport man, I'm get, trying to get into France or Spain in a couple of years' time, hopefully they'll see that I'm not some mad Brexit nutter and won't give me a hard time. Oh, they'll let you in. Yes. But will they let you back into Britain afterwards, though, is the ah, question. The Probably question. not. Yes. <laughs> Ian, how about you? And I'd never cared about the colour of my passport before, and I'm not going to start caring about it now. I'm going to renew mine early so it's burgundy for as long as humanly possible, because <laughs> that's the shallow, <laughs> shallow, shallow person that I am. <laughs> Finally, we don't know their real name, but their Twitter handle is blessed with pace. They ask, what's the biggest animal do you think that David Davis could single-handedly cling film to a lamppost? Ian, the <laughs> biggest animal that David Davis could cling film to a lamppost. I must press you on this, Minister. It's an amazing question. Uh, it's, I don't know, a, a slug? A slug, not a very big animal. No, exactly. I'd say a gerbil, at least. A gerbil? Yeah. Come on, he's you got a bit so more behind it. It's a beefy fella. Oh, no, they're just, they're just wild creatures, gerbils. Harry, what do you think? No, I think an ant. Uh, an uh, ant? I don't really, it didn't have very... 
I don't have much trust in his ability to do anything at all. I, I think he we, could... We call him Daffy Davis in our dictionary, by the way, because that came out of the word affidavit, and we thought it was all nice. It's sort of oh, Welsh okay. Daffy, Daffy Davis. Davis sort of wild like hair. That, this sort of, anyway. I, more... I, don't think, I don't think he's, he's... He's passed it now. He can't do anything at all. I've could. got more faith. I think he could cling from a medium-sized dog to our lamppost. Uh, a Brexit bulldog. A Brexit bulldog. <laughs> a medium-sized dog. Special SAS skills. I'd yeah. like to know what's the smallest animal that could cling, cling film David Davis to a lamppost. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to see it as well. Absolutely. Well, that's that, that, that's between you and your confession booth there, Peter. Anyway, we're coming to the end of the show. Finally, the Brexit doomsday clock is ticking. We started it last week and we've begun a Brexit time capsule like the one in Blue Peter, if you're old enough to remember what that is. Each week we're going to put something in it that we'll need once you've left the EU, if we leave the EU, or something that we'll miss. Last week, Ian chose cheap comics as the thing that he will miss because of the sterling crash. Peter, it's your turn. What's going in the Brexit time capsule? OK, I'm going to try to squeeze 1.92 million cars into the time capsule, or rather, the target that we had in this country recently for Britain to get back to producing 1.92 million cars a year. Um, you know, back, That was the record set in back, back in yeah. the 1970s, and we've been creeping up towards it until Brexit came along. The trouble is now... We export four-fifths of the cars that we assemble here, and half of those, more than half of those exports go to the EU. So the motor industry has officially given up on this, this target. Last year, car production fell by 3% to 1.67%, and, you know, domestic market is not looking very good. For some reason, as we've mentioned before on the podcast, the assembly of cars is seen as like a symbol of national virility. Well, it ain't looking so good at the moment. Mm. So I'm putting, because of Brexit, um, that... Um, target that, that was, would have been a wonderful target for British. It, to, it would turn around people's views of the idea that Britain, British industry is dead and we don't manufacture stuff anymore. It would have been a huge morale booster to the economy and to people, but we lost it. So that's 1.2 million cars? 1.92. 1.92 million. Well, it is a time capsule, so it's like the TARDIS, so it yep. will fit and in. And it's 70s as well. There you go. Absolutely. Uh, and that is pretty much the end of the show. Thanks to Harry Ears for coming in. Johnson's Brexit Dictionary is in the shops now. And a jolly good reader it is too. Thanks to Ian and Pete for not stealing my dinner money or flushing my head down the toilet. Yet. Yet. <laughs> this week's foreign language clip is in Greek by our good friend Alex Andreou, and apparently it's very rude. Zita to remain, na rixume to Boris Johnson se nai festio. That sounds rude. Whatever it was, it sounded very rude. Now, please be upstanding as we play out with Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional salute to our Patreon backers. Thank you very much to Alexander Ord, uh, Sam Julius, Helen Crow, Team Watcher, who, by the way, do very funny Brexit sketches on YouTube, and Joshua Drain. Hello and thanks from me to Josh Willison, Laura Hussey, Amanda Colton, Chris Hagen and Alex Hardwick. And finally, thanks from me to David Turnbull, Greg Sinclair, Simon Ward, James Swan and Hugo Don. Romaniax is produced and presented by me, Andrew Harrison, with Peter Collins and Ian Dunt. Studio production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniax is a Podmasters production.